Gracious God and Heavenly Father, this morning uh, we want to again thank you for this time, this opportunity to together come around your word, to learn together. As the people of God here in this place, may we uh, indeed treasure your word. May we uh, um, really uh, remember that it is your word to us, a word that brings life if we choose to follow it and heed it, put it into practice in our lives. Father, we pray for your help this morning to understand it better. We pray this morning for the help of your spirit to, uh, to apply it to our own hearts and our own lives. And we pray this morning, Lord, that as, uh, as you teach us, as uh, we listen to your word, as we uh, hear what it says to us, help us uh, indeed to, um, to see those areas in our lives which you did, do want to speak to us about and challenge us about. Help us to bring those before you, uh, confess them before you, Lord, and uh, have you change us and mould us into the people that you want us to be for your honour and for your glory and for our good. For we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The, uh, in the process of, uh, of, of a series through Deuteronomy, and uh, this morning we're going to be looking at this passage in Deuteronomy 4, which really focuses on this whole aspect of idol worship. In the, uh, Sunday, in the, morning, in the last Sunday morning's message, uh, you might to remember that we saw the importance of being how it was to be careful to obey the word of God, to obey his commands to us. Uh, the uh, verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through to 14. And you might recall that the, the first point of that message last, uh, last week was that the word of God itself imparts life to us. It does so because God himself is life. It is the word of God. God himself is life. And so it imparts life to us. Not only that, it points us to the source of life or the essence of life in the person of Jesus Christ. And it reveals to us also how to live a fulfilled life. Uh, one of those verses that, uh, that speaks of, uh, of that is in, found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, which I'm sure some of you are very familiar with, where it says that all scripture, all God's word, is indeed breathed out by God, that is inspired by God, given to us from God himself, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete Equipped for every good work. You see that the, the word of God has a purpose in order to teach us, to train us, to correct us, to, re, to rebuke us even, for, to train us up in the ways of God. Psalm 19 verses 7 to 11, which is one of the Psalms we looked at a bit last week, says this about the word of God, again highlighting the, the beauty and the importance of it. The law of the Lord is perfect because it revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And here where the, the psalmist you know, again emphasises how precious and how important the word of God is when he goes on to say, More to be desired are they than gold, the commands of God, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, by the commands of God, by the word of God, is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. 
Here we see very clearly the importance of the word of God for us in our lives, how precious it is and how um, blessed we are in order to, uh, to have, that, have the word of God for us today. Here in this next section of Deuteronomy 4, God through his servant Moses then seeks to, uh, to warn the people through the word of God, warn the people about a significant danger that they are now going to face as they go into this land, this promised land of Canaan. Remember they're on the, uh, the, the eastern shores of the Jordan River at the moment. They're in the plains of Moab, just across from the, uh, the land of Canaan. They're just about ready to go in and, and Moses is giving these, uh, these final words to the people, these final words of warning if you like. Like a final words of encouragement and of, uh, of telling them to be careful as they go into this land. And he warns them particularly that they need to be on their guard. You'll see that several times in the passage. You'll see that, uh, that Moses warns the people to be on their guard. In verse 15 he says, watch yourselves very carefully. In verses 16 and 19 he says, beware. And then in verse 23 he says, take care lest you forget the covenant. There's this, this sense of warning that comes all the way through this passage. It's repeated time and time and time again. Moses wants the people to beware of a danger. And that danger, as he goes on to say, is the sin of idolatry. There is nothing, in fact, more sinister and more pervasive, uh, more pervasively destructive, I should say, in the life of a believer than this sin of idolatry. Now you might say, well, what is that? Well, an idol is anything in our lives which we actually uh, give more importance to or more value to than God in our lives. So it can be, it can take any kind of shape or form, but anything which, which really um, takes away our affection and our devotion and our love and our worship of God and itself, you know, places that in, in God's place is an idol. And in our passage this morning, we're going to look at three particular truths, three significant things about idolatry and what God warns his people about through his word in terms of the danger of it. Um, I've given out some notes, so if uh, you came in this morning, you might have got some sermon notes there. By the way, let me know if they're helpful to you or not. Um, I was just trying something a little bit uh, new, so if they are helpful, then please uh, let me know. All right, so the first thing we're going to look at this morning is that idolatry demeans God and it demeans the relationship to which God has called us. We see that in verses 15 to 20 of our passage this morning. See, idolatry itself is really all about making God in our own, in our own image and actually worshipping the created rather than the creator. See, when God first revealed to himself to the people of Israel there at, uh, at Mount Sinai, or what uh, the, the, um, also referred to as Horeb here in this, uh, in this book, we're told that the people saw no form. They saw no form of God, but all they heard was a voice, the voice of God out of the midst of the fire. We see that in verse 15 of our, of our passage where Moses says, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully since you saw no form on that day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. This must have been an incredibly powerful and incredibly unforgettable event in the history of God's people, in the history of the people of Israel. To have been confronted by this sight there at the, the base of this mountain and there the, the mountain was, was covered in smoke and fire and thunder and lightning and the, and the ground shook. It must have been an, an absolutely awe-inspiring sight for the people to, uh, to be confronted by God in this way. 
And yet we're told that the temptation was for the people then to, to actually then sort of having sort of seen this, 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 um, representation of God, the glory of God, they were then tempted to make a physical representation of God. They wanted something tangible, something that they could relate to. It was very, very hard for them to relate to this, to this, you know, this, this, this representation of God in this, in this fire and smoke and lightning and thunder. And so they, in wanting something tangible, they go and they create this, this image of God in the form of a golden calf, which was very similar to the gods that they had just left of the people of Egypt. See, their understanding of God was completely inadequate. And so they endeavoured to make this kind of image in, you know, that, that sort of, that they could wrap their minds around. The people in the land of Egypt had had all sorts of of animals that they worshipped, all kinds of things. And we see uh, some of the um, pointers to that in, uh, you know, in our passage today. That, you know, that, the, uh, that, that, um, you know, animals that are on the earth, the likeness of winged birds, the likeness of fish and, and, uh, and things like that. The, uh, the Egyptians worshipped, you know, gods in the image of, of birds, of crocodiles, of baboons, all, all kinds of different animals, of bulls and calves and things like that. The people of the, uh, the land in which they were going to go into as well, the people of the land of Canaan, they too worship gods in, in these kind of images, but they also worship the sun and the moon and the stars as well. But what, we, what God wants us to know and what the people of Israel needed to discover is that there is nothing on earth, there is nothing in all creation that can truly represent the awe and the glory and the transcendence of God. Everything that, that, that we try to represent God with is completely inadequate. This is why God tells his people not to make any kind of image for themselves that seek to represent God, nor are they to bow down to these, to these celestial beings, the sun, the moon and the stars, because they're insulting to God. They're insulting to, uh, to him and to his character and they present a false understanding of who God is. They give a false impression, a false understanding of who God is. See, God's people were meant to be people who were to be, they were to be different. They were to stand out. They were to be distinct in the world. They were to be a living example to the nations around about them to point them to the truth about God. I haven't got that last point on there, but they were to point them to the truth about God, to show them what it means to live in relationship with God, to live in this blessed relationship with God. But worshipping idols would undermine the whole purpose of their unique privilege in existence. We see that in verse 20 of our passage this morning, where the uh, Moses reminds the people, but the Lord has taken you. And brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance. God had chosen them. He had specifically set them apart for himself to be his treasured possession. And there was a special and privileged relationship that the people had with God. And so they were then to to live their lives in a way which, which pointed people to this unique God. That he was nothing like the gods of the nations. That he was completely and utterly far above all other gods. That there is no other god like him. 
And so when the people sought to, to sort of try to make these images, and what God is saying is that, it, that this idolatry was completely inappropriate and improper because of this special relationship that the people had with him and because of the God who he is. Idolatry demeans God and it demeans the special relationship that we have with him. Not only that, idolatry provokes God's jealousy. Oh, there was the third point. There it is. All right. So there, God's people are meant to be uh, point other nations to the truth about God. The second point is that idolatry provokes God's jealousy and God's wrath. We see that in verses 23 to 26 of our passage this morning. Because you see, in seeking to represent God, in seeking to, uh, to represent God in the form of an idol, in the form of any kind of thing, the people were essentially attributing to that idol what really truly belonged to God. They were basically attributing to that idol the, 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 the glory and the worth of God. And it was completely inadequate for that. And so in that, they were really being unfaithful to God. Idolatry is being unfaithful to God. In verse 24 of our passage this morning, we're told that God is a consuming fire and a jealous God. It's interesting that the Bible you know, frequently refers to God as being this jealous God. Uh, you can find it in, in Exodus chapter 20 in verse 5 and Exodus chapter 34 and verse 14. You'll find it in, you know, in various places through the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 5 and 6, we'll see it in Joshua chapter 24 and in Psalm 78 verse 58. The Bible refers to God as being a jealous God. But at the same time, the Bible refers to jealousy as being bad or a sin. We see that in Numbers 5, Acts chapter 5, verse 17. We see it in Romans chapter 13, verse 13. Galatians 5, 20. James 3, verses 14 to 16. There are numerous places where the Bible refers to jealousy as being bad or a sin. So then how is it then that the Bible can refer to God as being jealous if, if, we, if, if it also says that jealousy is, this, is, is sin? Because there's nothing sinful or bad about God. What we need to understand then is that when the Bible refers to God as being jealous, it's not the same as the jealousy that we have that we're often guilty of in our lives. Stuart Briscoe, a um, pastor in the UK, puts it a bit like this. He's a very uh, prolific author and, and pastor, says, Perhaps we can understand it better if we identify God's jealousy as a zealousness for what is right, an utter, total, burning, consuming commitment to hold on to what is right. With all the intensity of his being, God will defend and insist on his rightful place at the centre of the universe and on the throne of his creatures' hearts. And he will resist with all his almighty power anything that infringes on his rightful position. That's one way of understanding God's jealousy. But what we need to understand is that God's jealousy is consistent with his character, particularly with his love. And in order to see this, we need to understand God's jealousy within the framework of his covenant relationship with his people. This covenant relationship with, with, with his people is kind of like a marriage relationship. And in this context, God's love for his people is this burning, passionate love for them and for their good and for them to be faithful to him. 
Just like a husband and a wife, they, you know, they want them, you know, each other to be completely and utterly devoted to, to one another, that they, you know, that they don't want any kind of, uh, competition or any kind of, uh, you know, rivalry within that kind of relationship from others. It's the same with God and for us. You see, God deserves and He demands absolute and wholehearted commitment from His people. See, God could have left the people of Israel in slavery in Egypt. He could have left them to to struggle under the burden and the hardship, the day-to-day life of of slavery, of of being, you know, basically at the the beck and call of of Pharaoh and all of his whims and all of his desires and pleasures for them just to basically be, you know, building all of these great buildings and that sort of thing, making these bricks each day, slogging it out day by day in the mud pits and the straw, making the bricks and things like that. God could have chosen to ignore the pleas of his people as they cried out to him for them, for him to rescue them from this, from this slavery, from this bondage, from this hardship, from this, from this trial in their lives. He could have ignored it, but instead, God chose to work graciously and powerfully for them and on their behalf and then commit himself into this covenant relationship with these people that they would be his treasured possession. He would be their God and they would be his children. God promised to always be their God and fulfill his purposes for them. Yet despite God's goodness, despite God's power and and might at work for them, they continually, the people continually turn their back on him. They continually choose to disobey him and instead to chase after the gods of the other nations around about them. They committed spiritual adultery. One of the books that really highlights this quite well in the scriptures is the, is the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. A wonderful book which, which speaks about, you know, this, this covenant relationship, this marriage relationship between God and his people, but it, 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 he does it in an in a, in a image of, of a marriage between a man called Hosea and this woman Goma. It's a wonderful book and I encourage you to, uh, to read through that. As these, as the people of God chased after these other gods, as they committed this spiritual adultery, they brought down God's righteous wrath and judgment upon themselves. They burned, they, they provoked God to jealousy and wrath. And what Moses says here in this passage is that, you know, where's the, as he warns the people about this, this sin of idolatry and the danger that is facing them in the land, he says, don't kid yourselves to think that God will indeed not punish you because you're his people. And he uses himself as an example in verses 20 and 21 of, of the passage. Um, sorry, in verse 21 and verse 22 of the passage, where he says, Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan, and that I should not enter the good land for the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For I must die in this land, I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Moses is saying, you know what, you know the kind of relationship that I have with God, where God has spoken to me face to face, where, you know, I've been, you know, God's chosen leader for you as, as his people. If you think that God won't punish you then just take a look at my life because I did the wrong thing and now I am bearing the consequences for my actions I am receiving the judgment of the righteous judgment of God on my life and he says and so will you so beware beware 
People mustn't think that God would not hold them accountable. To not only does idolatry not only demean God in our relationship with him that he's called us to, not only does it provoke God's jealousy and wrath, but idolatry itself leads to perishing. It leads to perishing. That's right, I thought that was coming out of the speakers. Eh? It leads to perishing. You know, for the Israelite people, history tells us that they themselves failed to heed this warning. They failed to heed these warnings of God. They failed to heed Moses' words to them. As they went across into the land, the, uh, the people themselves chose to ignore God's, word, God's life-giving word to them and they chased after these other gods. And in a sense, these, these verses, verses 25 through to 28, are almost prophetic because they actually speak of a time when the people will in fact turn their backs on God and what will happen to them. It points to the complete destruction of the, the northern kingdom of Israel. You know, later on in time when Israel had gone into the land, they'd conquered the land, they'd, they'd, be, they'd sort of set up this, this kingdom under the rule of David and then Solomon. And at the end of Solomon's reign, the kingdom split in two to a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom uh, you know, was, was ruled by you know, all the kings of the northern kingdom were all bad were all extremely evil in the sight of God. And in the end, God punished that kingdom and, and took them into, uh, into exile to Assyria. And that kingdom was never, ever to exist again. They were completely and utterly destroyed, as what God says here in this passage. What God said would happen did happen. The people were utterly and completely destroyed. To the southern kingdom of Judah, who had some good kings and some bad kings, they themselves continued to, to, to go after and chase after the foreign gods of the nations around about them. And so God brought the nation of Babylon across and took them into captivity as well. They went into exile and they served the gods of the Babylonians in, in their land. And there was only few of them left in number. Again, as we, we see in our passage this morning, and the Lord said, you'll be scattered among the peoples, you'll be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you, and there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. These people chose to worship idols instead of the one true God. They chose to be like the nations around about them instead of being distinct, instead of being the witness that they were meant to be, that God had planned for them to be to the nations around about them. They became, they lost their distinctiveness. Instead of being a holy nation, they became this unholy people. God gave them over to their desires. And they would have to do what they freely chose to do, that is to worship other gods. You see the irony in that? That in wanting to freely chase after these gods, God says, Rightio, well you can have what you want. And there you go, you will then have to serve these gods. But you'll quickly discover that these gods are absolutely worthless, useless, useless, and it is absolutely futile your worship of them because they're gods who do not hear, they do not see, they do not smell, they do not, you know, they just, they're, they're just nothing. They promise life, but only deliver misery and ultimately death. Just as the people of Israel 
God's people here in, in, this old, in the Old Testament, just like these people, we are today the people of God and we ourselves have got to beware of fashioning and creating idols in our lives because it is, it is such a danger for us as the people of God today as it was for God's people back then. 1 John chapter 5 and 21 says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. Now we don't, well we generally don't, go carving you know, little images of animals or the like and, you know, and bow down to them. We probably don't become sun and moon worshippers and things like that, but I guarantee there are a number of people who would call themselves Christians today who uh, religiously check the stars of the morning to see what their stars will say to them for, them for that day. Now, if that's not worshipping the stars, I don't know what is. Folks, we all will certainly allow various things in our lives to become objects of our affections and our worship. And as we do that, we then push God to the sidelines. We push God to the margins of our lives. And although these things promise us so much, what they end up being basically are things which are destructive to us. They are destructive to us personally. They're destructive to our relationship with God. And they destroy the witness that we are meant to have as the people of God to the world around about us. Because if we become exactly like the people around about us, if we become like the people of the world, then how on earth can we show them anything different? One of the things which comes out in this passage In terms of, you know, of, of the dangers of idolatry, the other thing that comes out in this passage so much is that, is, is the call for the people of God to remember what God has done for them. So he says, yeah, don't go after idols, but remember me, remember who I am, and remember what I've done for you. We see that God himself Although he's a jealous God and a God that, that, that does punish wrong, he's a merciful God as well. We see that in, in verses 29 through to 31. See, just as I said before that you know, God could have left the people of Israel there in, in, in Egypt in their slavery and that sort of stuff, in their bondage there, he could have, have left us, ourselves, slaves to the sinful passions and desires of our hearts. God could have left us in our sin. He could have allowed us to continue on that road of pursuing our passions and the desires of our hearts and the things of this world and allow us to continue on that road that leads to damnation. God could have chosen to, to, to allow us to do that. He could have chosen to give, the, give us all that, uh, that, that desire that was in our hearts and say, you know what, that's what you want, then you go ahead, you go ahead and have it. But he knew what the consequences of that would be for us. He knew what the dangers of that would be for us. And so, out of love, he stepped in, in out, of, out of his love and mercy, in order to rescue us and redeem us. He chose to come as our saviour. To reveal himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And to help us see our need to be reconciled to him. 
to have our sins forgiven, to be adopted into his family, to become his treasured possession, to be set free from our sin, and so in order to be a blessing to him and a blessing to others. That's what God chose to do for each and every one of us. And folks, God has given us the greatest gift that we could ever, ever hope to receive in this life, and that is the gift of himself. God has given us himself and all of the privileges and the blessings and the joy and and all that comes with that are ours in Jesus Christ. There is no greater blessing that we can have in this life than that. Than knowing that we belong to God, that we are his treasured children, adopted into his family. Why would we want anything else? Why would we want anything else? When we start to compare the, you know, the two, honestly, nothing really stacks up to God and our relationship with him. Why would we spurn his love for the fleeting pleasures of this world? As we read in the Gospels, what does it profit a man that he gained the whole world yet lose his soul? You know, right now there are things in our lives, in your life and mine, that are competing for our affections and our worship. Idols. Idols of materialism. Things which, you know, the, the, the things which we want to get for ourselves today. You know, the, uh, the, uh, the old adage, you know, the, the, the chasing after the toys, if you like, of this world. The things which, which the world promises to give us meaning and purpose and fulfilment and satisfaction and, and joy and happiness and all those sorts of things. They, they offer so much and yet they want to enslave us. They want to enslave us to their powers. Not only is it the idols of materialism, but it's the idols of pride and ego in our own lives. Those things which help us to feel much better about ourselves, you know, our accomplishments and our careers and our, you know, our status and that sort of thing. Those, those themselves are idols as well. The idols of pride and ego. Then there are the idols of knowledge and wisdom. You know, today there's this, you know, huge, you know, emphasis and push about, you know, for mankind to, to have this, this, this knowledge that is, that is really, you know, so we can understand everything. We can just put everything in these neat little boxes and have it all under our own control. It's an idol. They're idols of knowledge and wisdom. You know, of human, you know, achievement and accomplishment and that sort of thing. And then there are the idols of pleasure. One of the things we were speaking about uh, the other night as we had that uh, gospel training night here is that one of these gospel, one of these idols of pleasure is, is, is our own comfort. It's our own comfort. We treasure, we worship, we value our own comfort more than, than, than many other things in this world today. This is one of the biggest dangers for us as Christians, that if we start to, to worship, you know, having comfortable lives, you know, that, that everything goes smoothly and that sort of thing, if we start to idolise that and we start to place our comfort at the pinnacle of the things that we really value in our life, 
then God gets pushed to the side. And we love ourselves more than we love God. It becomes an idol. There are many, many idols. Idols of all kinds of shapes and sizes and forms. Some of these idols have found a way into the centre of our lives, folks. Some of these idols have found their way into the centres of our lives today. And they've caused us to be unfaithful to God, to the one who is absolutely faithful to us. Some of these things have caused us to worship the created rather than the creator. We've made gods of our own making and in so doing what we've done is we've demeaned God. We've distorted the truth about God. We've, we've usurped the authority of God. In other words, we ourselves have claimed that authority for us. We sit in judgment over God and over the things of, of this world instead of allowing God to sit in authority and judgment over us. We've spurned the love of God. And in doing all of this, we have left ourselves with powerless and empty lives that benefit neither us nor God, nor the people he's called us to witness to in our world today. That's what we've done. That's what we've done by allowing these idols to take the place of importance in our lives. But yet, even in our rejection of God, even in our unfaithfulness towards God, even in our spiritual adultery towards God, God has not abandoned us. He doesn't leave us or destroy us, but instead he offers us forgiveness and restoration through Jesus Christ. And as we read in our passage in, in chapter 4 last week, oh, you know, what a people is there that has a God so near them, so merciful and faithful, so merciful and faithful despite our sin. What, what people has a God like this, folks? We do. We do. You do. You have that kind of God. That kind of Father who loves you. What better, more precious and desirable thing then could we ever hope to have in our life than this kind of God and his love for us, hey? Let's not kid ourselves, though. If there are things in our lives which have taken God's place, he will deal with them and he'll deal with you because God is a jealous God and a consuming fire. But can I say that he won't do it out of spite, but he'll do it out of love and out of righteousness. Look at in verse 30 of our passage today, where it says, When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. When God used the nation of, of, of Babylon to, uh, to, to act as a means of his judgment on his people and he took his people away into, uh, into, into exile in, in Babylon, although God used them as a means of judgment, he also used it as a means of helping the people to see that what they were missing out on when they turned their backs on God. God was using it as a means of saying, you know what, if you just come back to me, I'll take you back. 
You can see how tough and how, how hard it is for you. You can see that these gods are worthless, useless, useless idols that neither hear nor see nor speak nor smell. If you'll only just come back to me, I will take you back. Hebrews 12 says to us that God disciplines those he loves. He loves us enough to discipline us and to help us to see that these things are, are, are destructive for us in our lives. And they're not for us. They're inappropriate and improper for the people of God having these idols in our lives. Idolatry is serious business and we ignore it at our own peril. So today I just encourage you to, to take time to examine your own heart. To examine your own heart before God. And ask the Spirit of God to reveal any of those idols that you might have placed there in the, on the throne of your heart today in place of God. To confess them, to destroy them, and to join with the psalmist in Psalm 16 when he says this, where he says, Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. I have set the Lord always before me because in your presence... In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, again, this word of, uh, of, of warning, a word of uh, encouragement, a word of chastisement to us this morning from your word, Lord, that uh, reminds us that there are indeed idols today in our lives, idols, that, Lord, that will seek to... Uh, to um, take us away from you, Lord, that will seek to, uh, to, dis- to, uh, to, to bring destruction and, and hardship and difficulty in our lives that, that promise so much and yet re- leave us with, uh, with just a mouthful of ashes, Lord. Lord, today we've learned from your word that, uh, that, that idolatry, that, that chasing after idols, that having these things in our lives, Lord, they, they, not only do they demean you, but they, they demean the relationship to what you've called us as your people. Lord, they, not only that, they, they do provoke your jealousy and your wrath. And that you indeed will judge us and you will hold us accountable for our actions, but that you do it out of love for us. But Lord, these idolatry will only lead to, to us ultimately perishing in our lives. But because you are a merciful God, because you are a gracious God, because you are a God of steadfast love and faithfulness to us, Lord, you have worked in order to, 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 to secure for us this precious relationship with you. And that, Lord, you are doing everything that you can in order to help us to know the blessing of that. So help us indeed today to put aside these idols, Lord, to let them go, to see them for the, the worthless, valueless things that they are and instead to treasure the God whom you are and the wonderful relationship that we have with you through Jesus Christ. Thank you in his name. Amen.